0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 286 for September 20th, 2010. Ten years of having to stumble through saying the name of the year. Uh, it's, it is nice to be in 2010. I am Dave Hamilton here from Durham, New
1: Hampshire. Here we are. Oh, we're here. Yes. Hi. John Ephron here in Fairfield. Connecticut. That's
0: right. And and this is the Mac Geek Cab. What we do here, what we aim to do here, is we take your questions, we take your tips, and we share them with the audience. We answer your questions as best we can. We share answers from the audience. But we are here as the Mac Geek Hub to help Mac users improve or better their computing experience. That's what we do. Solving problems. Solving problems. Yeah. Helping you with your computer and solving your problems. Absolutely. Uh the let's see, we have a lot to go through today. We've got uh some problematic airport things to talk about. We've got some great follow-ups that you folks sent in about iPhoto. Um, oh yeah. A couple other questions. I do want to take this opportunity though, uh, and talk about our first sponsor. Mix things up a little bit. Sometimes we wait till later in the show. Sometimes we do it right here. Barebones.com, Yo Jimbo is the first sponsor of this show. Now Yojimbo is a catch-all for all that information on your Mac that has nowhere else to go. Your calendar, iCal, BusyCal, whatever it is, has your calendar data. Your email program, whatever that is, has your email data. But what do you do with all the other bits and snippets and pieces of data, serial numbers, uh, little text files, images that you want to keep together because they're related, and yet the type of information they are doesn't fit into one nice little pocket well yojimbo to the rescue it's a little daunting i'll admit when you first launch it because it's it's a blank slate they've got a couple things in there but for the most part it's a blank slate there is a little tour uh in an introductory movie that you can see at barebones.com But the idea is it's pretty simple. You just start dragging things in or creating items right in there. They do have a little template for serial numbers if you want to store your application serial numbers in there. Or you can just start with a text file. For example, every week I create the agenda that John and I follow here for the Mac Geek Gab right inside Yojimbo. And I can put audio files right in the agenda. I also put PDFs of the emails that we're going to read i put those right in uh the same collection as the agenda so i've got the agenda as one file with the audio files and then another file for each email that we're going to read and they're all kind of kept together i can sync them with mobile me i can sync them with dropbox i can really manage this data any way i want and then when i'm done with something i toss it in the trash and out it goes this is yojimbo from barebone software of course there is a free trial and then uh, when you're ready to buy, it's 39 bucks for an individual or 29 bucks for an educational discount, which includes students, teachers, and uh, I think really anybody that's involved with uh, the academic world. You can see all the details at barebones.com. And with that, John, I think it's time to move on to and listen to Dave's question.
2: Hey, guys, my name is Dave. I have a uh, mail question for you. Um, I would really like to start using my Mac at my office for work. Um, my office manager is kind of old school and uh, set in her ways and doesn't understand Macs. So, a big Windows person. So, anyways, um, her big sticking point, and I can't figure out a way around it. Um, we have a fax machine for all of our incoming faxes that forwards the faxes as a PDF to email. Um, when it generates the email, it always makes the subject line fax forward from Samsung whatever machine number. Um, we always take those faxes in Outlook, open them up, and in Outlook, if you want to, when you open the email message, you can actually change the subject line to whatever you want. So we'll usually rename them to like, the customer's name, PO number, or whatever it is. Um, I can't figure out any way for the life of me how to do that in mail. Um, I don't know if it matters, but to help explain our settings, we use Google Apps for your domain. So all of our stuff is Gmail, basically. Um, I can't figure out how to do it in mail. I found kind of a workaround to do it in Mozilla Thunderbird. I'd really prefer to stay in mail if I could. Um even in Thunderbird, you had to download an extension to they could do it. Um, and actually, I'd really prefer to just use the web interface. I really like Gmail's web interface, but I know that's probably a long shot. I don't think there's any way you can do it in there. Um, so that's about it. I was just looking for some ideas or tips or tricks, if there's any way to rename the subject line of an email message on the Mac. Um, this is where you can cut me off.
0: And so we shall cut you off. And uh, thank you, Dave, for doing that, because it's always very helpful. As longtime listeners of the show will know when you send in a question, let us know where to cut you off and then provide your contact information. All right, John. So you
1: did some research on this. What did you find? And amazingly, there is a way to do this, Dave. I didn't. Know, well, first off, I was like, you can't change the subject, though. You know, I, I can't recall a reason that I'd ever needed to or wanted to. But I found the tip thanks to Mac OS X Hints. And okay. here's the workaround. It's not perfect, but it does accomplish the goal. You take the mail in your inbox and you drag it to the drafts folder in Mail app. Now you can change the subject line. <laughs> and then when you're done with it, you drag it back. Huh. Now, the only thing is that it changes a couple other things. So it also changes, but but if... And it sounds like what they're doing is using the subject line to categorize the message in in some way so there's some system that they use whether it's i I don't recall the information he said whether it's a po number or the name of the customer or, or whatever but but i assume they have some consistent way of doing this in the subject line and the email is the way to contain this so makes sense this will do that it it does change some other things let me look here i made a note of it um i think it changes the time and date and i think it changes the from as well Okay. So actually, oh, let me bring right. that in addition changes. It also modifies the from field as well as the date and time. So that may be a showstopper. So again, it does do the advertised uh, or, or the requested feature in that it changes the subject line. Another thing you could do. And here's another approach is if you take an email from mail and drag it to the desktop, it appears as a document of type email and you can rename that it doesn't rename the subject line, but it renames the file that you've just created, which is a mail message. If you double click on it, Dave, it opens it up in mail. Right. But what you do is, so what you need to do is couple that with putting it in a folder, you know, so creating some sort of uh, system to to contain all these mail messages. Now the thing is then you'll have two copies of it, one in the inbox and one in that folder, and that that could get to be a mess. And what this leads me to, Dave, though, is you I, I know, have- how appro- how appropriate uh, I guess I just want to toss out the topic because I've seen a lot of people struggle with this and and've worked uh, done this in the enterprise realm is is email really what you want to be using to act as more of a database or a filing system
0: I, I, mean, I do um not okay. not my entire filing system, but certainly for emails yeah well I mean I don't want to double file right the the worst thing is to have data now uh backup. Backups aside, the worst thing you can do is put data in two different places, right? Because then you don't know where to find it. And if you, Mm -hmm. you know, so for emails, I keep it all in mail. I archive them off. Of course, I back them up regularly. But uh, but as far as my main place to go, you know, if I know it was a conversation in email, I do it. And, And the cool thing is Spotlight on the Mac can search. Emails just as well as it's searching documents and even simultaneously.
1: So right. So I guess the only thing I've run into is some enterprises, especially when you're dealing with lots of employees, um, they don't like necessarily use email because the problem is, especially if you're talking hundreds or thousands of employees, that takes disk space. Uh, like what some I, well, some places will do is create quotas. So okay, you can use your email as a filing system, but we're going to limit you to a gigabyte or right. whatever. Well, what that um, sounds to me like is that IT is imposing a
0: policy to make life easier for them as opposed to going with the flow of what the employees want to do. I, you know, to, to me, it's if, if, if that's what the users want to do and there's no problem for management and we can cut, cut this conversation off shortly here. But then then I.T. needs to adapt as opposed to saying, hey, no, we don't have room because you got room for the data somewhere. You're going to store it somewhere. So you might as well store it in the email box. I, that's my feeling.
1: Right. So the other thing that came up is that Outlook is being used. Outlook will shortly be out for the That's Mac. That's right. So right now, Outlook on the Mac is not an option. Mail, so so I'm going to, so what did he say? They were using Google Apps, so what is that? IMAP, I guess they're using, so. Uh, well, Gmail, yeah,
0: presumably IMAP. He could be using Pop. I've got a couple of, of other potential solutions for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is Delegate. Make somebody else do it, because they've got Windows computers. But uh, number two would be Forward the message to yourself and change the subject line there. Still got all the attachments. It's got everything. You're good to go. And you're rewriting the subject line. Not not quite as efficient as moving it to the drafts and back because you're not creating, you know, with that, you're not creating a second copy of the message, which is exactly what you're doing when you forward. But uh, but if you trash the first copy, then, you know, you're good to go and you can control it and it's easy. And that you could do from Google's uh, web interface as you can alter Well, you know, you can forward a message and then the subject line is whatever you want it to be. But I like the I like the delegate approach. (laughs) Hey, why not solve the problem that way? Yeah, no problem. I don't have a PC, but uh, but, you know, Timmy does. So I'm going to forward off to Timmy. How's that sound? All right. Moving on to Michael. Michael has a question. He says, I pre-ordered a new Apple TV and have a question. Currently, I own an older generation Apple TV and have come to love the little device and wanted to buy another for my other TVs in the house. But I was waiting for the day Apple would release the new one. Now that that day is here, I was looking to set up an iTunes network. How could I go about doing this? Currently, my Apple TV is connected to my iTunes library and I sync or stream my content to it. However, my computer is not always on or my user account is not always logged in, which is why I like the hard drive space on the older Apple TV. But now that that feature is gone, I would like to know if or how I can set up an iTunes network so that my computer does not have to always be awake or on. I currently have an Airport Express and I want to know if this is possible and if I need to get an Airport Extreme. But really, I just want to know if it's possible. All right, so yeah, on this one, The there's a couple things to note about the new Apple TV. Number one is that, well, we haven't touched one yet. And chances are uh, most of you haven't either. So there's going to be some some nebulous answers. But but what's clear is that it does not have a hard drive. I think it's probably got some sort of storage in there that it self manages uh, for streaming and buffering and that sort of thing. But unlike the old one, you cannot push content to it and have that content stored right on the Apple TV in a way that you can manage. So you do need to stream content. Now that doesn't mean you have to stream from iTunes. In fact, one of the points of the new Apple TV is that you can stream content directly from the internet to the device and whatever's connected to it. So your computer doesn't need to be on if you're doing that. However, if you want to connect to your own iTunes library, then of course it needs to be made available. Uh, and if your computer's not on as you point out Michael it's not there now there are a couple of devices that you can put on your network they call them uh, well the common the 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 umbrella name for them is SAN storage area networks but really what it is is it's a networkable storage or network attached storage device uh and there's a lot of people that make these i checked a i checked one out from C at uh, South by Southwest last year, and they just came out with a new one called wireless space. Now these are intelligent network storage and they have their own little servers built into them. In addition to just being able to plug in or attach to your network, uh, they have little servers, meaning you can do a file server, but most of these, and the will one certainly falls into this category have an iTunes
1: server built in now. So do you sync your content from a computer to this device?
0: You copy, or copy it? Yeah, you copy okay. your iTunes content to this device, and then it appears to your other computers as another iTunes library. If, if you've ever gone through the process where you have two computers on the same network, you can go into iTunes, iTunes, go into sharing, and uh, and turn on sharing, and then the other computer can see your content. You can put a little password there, and I recommend that if it's a portable, because that way you don't have to think about it when you're traveling. But uh, but yeah, it'll just appear in iTunes and you can select it and stream music from it as long as you've got access and and good to go. My assumption is that that's how this new Apple TV will work. The other assumption I'll make is that there isn't some lock on the Apple TV that only lets it sync to an actual iTunes library as opposed to one of these devices masquerading as an iTunes library. Right. Let's see. Drobo's got one with their Drobo share product called Firefly. Uh, that lets you install a little app that does the same thing. But again, we have not tested this with the Apple TV yet. So it's impossible to say for sure that any one of these is going to work because I don't think anyone really knows other than, uh, you know, possibly someone inside Apple, but but that, that would be the, that would be the way to do it. uh, I think. And again, it's okay. You know,
1: that sounds reasonable. and I think what they're actually doing. So I I poked around a little bit here and iTunes, what iTunes has, as far as I can tell, is its own sharing protocol. And I actually looked here. So I think it's on ports 3689 and 5353. Okay. But it's file sharing, but it's just specific to iTunes. So these guys obviously must uh, you know, have their devices on that port. You may want to make sure your firewall is set up to allow that stuff, though. Yep. You know, it shouldn't be a problem on a local network. But it may be. Right. So, so just to dig a little deeper into what these things are actually doing, I, I don't think they're anything more than a file server just on a special port that iTunes looks for when it gets on the network.
0: Yeah, I think there well, there's something with Bonjour. I think, I think the big okay. limitation and it wasn't there initially, but it is now is that iTunes will not attach to a client that's not on the same subnet, i.e. not connected <sighs> to the same network. And I think that was something they had to put in to appease the record labels. There, there was some concern and oh, yeah. concern, but there were a lot of people that were opening up that port on their router and saying hey connect to my IP address here and you can you know stream my iTunes library from me to you all day long I don't care uh,
1: and I think the yep, label, that's exactly why they did that remember that because yeah they didn't think about that is oh I'll, wait TC Papia works all across the globe Yeah, it's a
0: beautiful thing <laughs> Milo Medin sort of you know made it that way but uh, yep but anyway all right all right Uh okay Todd's got a uh, an interesting question that'll that'll lead us into our airport conversation here
2: Hi guys, this is Todd from Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, I was listening to your last episode, I think it was a 285, uh, on the one that had to do with the audio MIDI setup uh, deal in the utility subfolder, and I'm playing around with this aggregate device thing. And what I want to do is make it so that the sound uses the built-in output on my MacBook Pro, but also uses... Uh, airport speakers. Is it possible to make that work or is that something that may be coming during airplay, Uh, whatever, in a month or two? I don't know. Uh, Thanks a lot. Here's where you cut me off. Awesome. So
0: let me let me make sure I have the, the concept right, John. And then I think you've experimented with this. The idea is Todd wants to play music from iTunes on his computer and then I'll back that up. Todd wants to play sound from his computer. We're not sure if it's iTunes, but for part one of this answer, we're going to assume it's iTunes and we're going to talk about another option. But he wants to take sound from his computer, have it come out both uh, simultaneously out of the, the local speakers on his MacBook Pro and the remote speakers connected to his Airport Express. And you have
1: an Airport Express, John. Absolutely. And the short answer for this. So this is based on something that we covered in a prior episode where you could take multiple devices. And here's the key, Dave, I think that answers the question. You can take using the MIDI utility, multiple output devices and aggregate them. Correct. The problem is, and I verified this, I have an Airport Express. It has an audio jack. And I don't recall exactly where, but there's somewhere in there where you say, whether it's called AirPlay or something else, um, would you like to enable this feature on the Airport Express? And if you do, then, well, you also want to enable it within iTunes. The key here, though, I'll talk first, just to keep keep, keep the flow answering the question. Yes. So the problem is these speakers do not appear as an output device. If you go to system preferences, sound and then output. Yep. These speakers do not show up as an output device, therefore, unless there's something I'm missing, it's not even an option because it will not show up in the output, so therefore you cannot make it part of this aggregate device. The only place it will show up, and this is if you have iTunes set up, and it's funny because uh, I have iTunes 10, and actually, I'm having a heck of a time launching it, Dave. Huh. On my MacBook Pro, it keeps getting upset about a camera driver. First off, I'm like, why would iTunes even be talking to a camera? I don't get it, but, but it doesn't it, make sense. Anyways, in the lower right, and it may be left over for something else, but it consistently comes up and says that launch was interrupted due to this, this driver. I'll, I'll, I'll call it into the Mac again and see if they can help me with that. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> now I'll figure it out. But when iTunes eventually does start in the lower right hand corner, well, first, yeah, you want to go to preferences, devices, look for remote speakers connected with AirPlay. So iTunes 10 already uses the new terminology. Okay. Um, But yeah, if if you have a set of speakers that are on an Airport Express and you click in in that part of the screen in the lower right hand corner on iTunes, you will get a menu of all of the AirPlay speakers that you have defined. Got it. So I am not aware of a way to I mean, there's I mean, I'm sure underneath the covers there's a way to expose that. I mean, if iTunes can see it, then maybe other things can. But uh, I think you may know you may know more about this than I do, Dave, about how you would expose that. I mean, could sure. I have some ideas. Actually. I mean, some software besides iTunes has to be able to access this, which is you know, just streaming the audio data to the Airport Express and then right. playing it on the speakers.
0: Right. So uh, b- before I go into that, I want to I just want to confirm that if you want to get sound from iTunes and have it come out simultaneously from your Mac and your Airport Express, iTunes will do that without any third party software. Correct.
1: I didn't try it on both, though, actually, no, in iTunes 10, there is a way, I think it's like manage output. So yeah, actually, I'm pretty I, sure you can. I, I'm I did sure not try to do it. both, Okay, but it looks like the interface. Well, you know, actually, I think it's still on right now. I'll check into that while you. Uh, OK,
0: I'm pretty sure you can. I, I'm pretty sure I've done that uh, before. However, and that's limited to iTunes. So if you want to take sound from other apps or you want to take sound And beam it not. Let's let's say you don't have uh, I, you know, an airport express somewhere, but you have perhaps an Apple TV, uh, which iTunes will see. But or maybe you've got a Windows machine in the other room that's connected to bigger speakers or you've got another Mac that's connected to speakers or you have an iPhone uh, that you want to play the music through all simultaneously. Well, what I'm getting into here is I want to talk about our second sponsor here and our second sponsor Is Rogue Amoeba. And it's great that Todd's question came in this week uh, because Rogue Amoeba makes a lot of products. What we're talking about today is a product called Airfoil that does exactly this. So it was really serendipitous that Todd's question uh, came in at the time that it did. What Airfoil does is exactly what we're describing here. It allows you to take. Any audio, not just the audio from iTunes, but any audio, Safari, QuickTime Player, uh, Radio Shift, you know, VLC, whatever audio you want. And, you know, Rogamibi, these are the guys that make Audio Hijack Pro, so they get how to do this, right? And what Airfoil does, it takes that audio and it beams it out to other devices. If you've got an Airport Express or an Apple TV, it sees that and beams it to it. If you have another Mac or a Windows machine... You run the Airfoil app on those devices or on those computers, and it then receives and Airfoil does the, takes care of doing the magic to make everything happen in sync. So you can have sound coming out of you know 16 different devices in your house, and I I, I say 16 off the top of my head. I I don't know if there's a limit here, but certainly many devices, and uh in, and that includes your iOS devices as long as they're on the network, you know attached Wi-Fi. You can have it coming through your headphones. You can have it coming out the speakers. Uh, There is an airfoil app for uh, the iPhone and iPad. So airfoil is available at rogue amoeba.com. And uh, of course you can download a free copy. And then when you're ready to buy, it's a $25 uh, for a single license. And then you can get uh, three Oh, five members in your house household for forty six bucks with a family pack. So twenty five bucks for the single user, forty six dollars for a uh, for five users in the house, and uh, and then you can get a a Mac and Windows bundle for forty bucks. So. Lots of options here, but first just go get the demo and try it out and make sure it's going to work for you before you go back and, uh, and before you go back and buy. So that's rogue We'll put a link in the show notes as always, but, uh, but a, 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 nice little answer to that question. And that's that John, uh, I think it's time to move on to more airport stuff. Uh, Daniel is having a
1: problem. Ah. But first, yes, you have. I did confirm at least iTunes 10, and I think prior versions, or maybe it's new. But it does, if it sees multiple output options, there is a multiple speakers option. And I just verified that it's playing both through the speakers of my MacBook Pro and the speakers that are downstairs connected to the Airport Express.
0: Brilliant. And that's pretty cool. If you haven't experienced this, either again, either with iTunes or Airfoil or even both, uh, it's really cool to have music. Coming out simultaneous, it's like I'll call them the old days when you would turn on the radio and tune it, you know, turn on three different radios and tune them all to the same station. So you could just kind of walk around your house. It's cool. If you're having a party, you use the airport express to get sound outside. You know, you've got maybe your Mac upstairs and another Mac downstairs and you plug speakers into all of them. And now as people kind of move through your house, go inside or out, it doesn't matter. The entertainment, the music is uh, is all there simultaneously, which is cool. It's very cool. Indeed. All right. Daniel writes, I have a problem with connecting my iDevices to my Airport Extreme. I've gone through all the usual troubleshooting. I've reset the cable modem. I've reset the Airport Extreme to factory settings and used new names for my wireless networks and also for my base station. I tried it with no security turned on and I turned the iDevices on and off. The net, my iPad and iPhone still won't connect to any of the 2.4 or 5 gigahertz networks. However, I can connect to the guest network, which is no use because I can't connect my Apple remote on my phone or anything like that. I can connect my iMac, MacBook Air, and MacBook Pro to all three wireless networks. When I look at the Wi-Fi connection under the menu on both my iPad and iPhone 4, and select the right error to get info on the network, it shows briefly the DHCP info with my IP address, but then it disappears and there's no connection. It shows info in there for the guest connection and it stays. Previously, I'd been running on an old airport extreme base station for three years with no problem, but my new dual band is causing me headaches. Hopefully you can help. This is a strange one, John, because he's been through what I would say are the troubleshooting procedures. And the fact that he has two devices that are not able to connect, both of them iOS devices, tells me that something's not right, with, not with the iOS devices, but with the unit, the Airport Extreme itself. Especially. With oh, no, the- no. I'm going to violently
1: disagree with you. All right, go. Violently. <laughs> not violently. I'm not going to hit you. But um, I'll shake my fist. I'll wag my finger. Anyways, here was my thought, Dave. There, from what I recall in the iOS devices... When you set it up, when it knows about a network, uh, what I'm wondering is if it may has may have cached or stored some of the authentication information. I think one step you can do on the iDevice is I don't uh, have uh, one in uh, front uh. of me at the moment. You didn't listen to Daniel's question, though.
0: He said he's renamed both the networks and the base station. And he's turned off
1: security. Uh, all right. But you're right. Like, well, I know there's a setting in there that says, forget this network. Yeah. I, what I'm saying is there may still be. There may be information on the iDevices that has been saved inadvertently. So, so I'm still going to suggest the one other thing, though I didn't explicitly state it, is to. Uh, though No, no I, I see what you're saying. Yes. Uh, everything being changed, this shouldn't be an issue. Right. I'm thinking it, it may have been. I mean, if you have one login that failed, that, that may stick around but no you're right uh, I mean I had some other suggestions but the resetting kind of got rid of those I mean there's you know DHCP and access control and stuff like that but that as far as I know unless he loaded in an old profile which you can do then all that stuff is uh, sure. is reset to very reasonable ranges and that there shouldn't be any access control based on Mac address and there shouldn't be you know a teeny tiny DHCP range I mean I think it, it defaults to like a hundred devices Right. because um, that was my other thought devices saying hey you got an address for me and it's like yeah no that's why that d h c p thing kind of got me excited when he mentioned that. It sounds like it's just about ready, and then it says nope,
0: but why? yeah, it's weird, or you know here so here's something I would try because if other devices are connecting you know it creates a mystery uh so one thing you you may not be far off john i and I don't know how i devices manage their wireless network memory, but it's possible that there is some cache of not the network name but the MAC address associated with the network. I know sometimes mm. the guest networks are broadcast with a different MAC address. Uh, I don't know how the I don't know if that's what the Airport Extreme does. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm just thinking of this now, kind of as we're going through it. But that's that's one possibility that it is. It, there is something cached in there, and unfortunately, the only way to test for that is to wipe your iDevice clean. Do a backup first by syncing it with iTunes. Au contraire. Well, I mean, you got to wipe... Oh, actually, you can reset all network data in your iDevice, too, can't you?
1: Well, one thing I would suggest, there may be a place to look, Dave, is if you get the poorly named iPhone configuration utility... Yes. One thing it lets you do is view the console logs on the iDevice, including, or at least I've done it with my iPod Touch you may be able to see something in the console log. And I forget exactly which it, we will link to the program. It's meant for people that are deploying a large number of iPhones in an enterprise, I think, right. But it gives you some things like being able to view the console that could certainly offer you uh, potentially offer you more information than you'd be able to get otherwise. Cause it sounds like it's trying to do something and backing off. And I would think that may be something that will be in the console log of the iDevice. Yeah. So it could be,
0: All right. So, yeah, the other thing to check is go to on your on your iDevice, iPhone, iPad, iPod touch, go to settings, go to general at the bottom, go to reset. And in the middle of that is reset network settings. Now, this will wipe out uh, some passwords and things like that, but it should if there is something in a cache, it it should get rid of that. Again, the fact that it's happening on two devices is a little Mm. suspect to me, but, you know, I, I think back it up either way before you do this by syncing with iTunes. But but otherwise, you know, I think I think that would be something to try. But, yeah, I. I think in the end, you're going to find that you've got a, a faulty device somehow, and it's weird because other things are connecting to it. But I don't know. Yeah, Apple's 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 devices are weird. I've, I've had. In fact, we're going to talk about it with the, with the next question here. I've I, too, have had some weird issues with their wireless devices Um, but you know, it could be, uh, it could be something else on the network. So disconnect everything else from these iDevices, uh, from the, sorry, from your airport extreme and only connect your iPhone or iPad, uh, you know, maybe reset it, give the network a brand new name that it hasn't been before. And then only, you know, start by only connecting your iPad or your iPhone and see if it holds the connection. If it does, and then as you add other things, see if, you know, one device knocks it off, that, that would be the other way of doing it. So, uh, I, I mentioned Michael, I guess it's time to move on to Michael. Michael says lately, I've been noticing that when I start syncing any content over to my Apple TV, it freezes up my wireless network. Basically my whole internet goes down. The interesting thing is that on my modem, I see no indication that the internet is down. I just find that I can't load a page and that the Apple TV stops and gets hung up, uh, any thoughts. And then he wrote back and he said, uh, to get it back up. He just power cycles, the airport extreme. So it makes no changes to the cable modem. Uh, but, uh, you know, and the airport and the network comes back up. So presumably the issue is not with the cable modem that it's, you know, with the wireless router since a restart of that comes up. It, it's a very interesting thing. I, as I said, I've seen something like this. I have two of the older airport extremes in my house, John, and, Mm -hmm. uh, they will work fine until they simply stop passing any data and then stop even broadcasting the fact that they are there as, as far as wireless networks go. And, Hmm. uh, and I find that this happens. I haven't been able to narrow it down, but it happens with both of them. So I don't think I have bad hardware in terms of that it's any different from the other hardware that's out there. But uh, but, you know, I have, we have quite a few wireless devices, but not more than 10, maybe. And the other thing is, I, I think it started when I, my daughter got that Dell Mini 10 V. And she does connect to these two, one or the other. They're kind of in different corners of the house. And I think if she transmits a lot of data across the network, perhaps a time machine backup uh, from her Dell, that often is enough to to choke one of these things, which is, which is odd. It's very similar to what Michael's describing here. And I, hmm. I think that, I think there's some wackiness with Apple's devices, uh, especially since again, I'm seeing it on two of them. So.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I can't say I've ever seen that, but I have a time capsule, Okay, which I think is essentially a, it's the same airport stress, but uh, yeah, except as a hard drive. Mm-hmm. So we're going to chalk it up to wackiness. I don't like that. I don't either. That, that sounds I, not very, uh, scientific. It's not very scientific.
0: <laughs> no, I don't, I, I think it's flakiness is what it is. But of course, okay, I, well, say, well, well. I say this and, uh, my, my Linksys router this morning. I get back from, and this thing's been running for, you know, for probably months, if not a year without ever being rebooted. And, uh, and I came back uh, today from I actually went to have uh, a brunch with Ricky Spiro, who is a former writer, actually still writes for hey. a sometimes. Yep. And uh, he started the Apple Context Machine podcast, which started as the Apple Weekly Report for us. But I had I had a brunch with him and his lovely wife. And when I got back, our Internet connection here at the house was really flaky and uh and I noticed that my router was just rebooting itself constantly. Wasn't overly hot in the office. It just, it just died. Now, thankfully, I keep a spare router configured exactly like the other one, ready to go. And so I just unplugged the other one. I plugged it back in uh, to plug the new one in, fired it up. And within a minute, I was in business, which is good because I've got this automated trading engine. I'm testing this uh, Trade Savant automated algorithmic trading thing. And it had opened a position uh, so it was good to get it back online very, very quickly. But, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, routers are flaky things. I, I think they're, you know, they're made with cheap parts, but you know, the fact that we can buy something that does all that stuff for, you know, less than a hundred bucks kind of tells you that, you know, it's mass produced and it's probably going to break.
1: Well, and you just, uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've seen as you may, but, uh, well, yeah, when you did this type of work, I mean, I've seen routers that cover entire buildings. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thousands of ports. Of course, they cost thousands of dollars. So, right. uh right. yeah, I mean, the, the other thing I can only think of, Dave, is that you know, since it is wireless, I mean, follow what we fo- well, one, make sure that there are no firmware, make sure there are no firmware updates for the router. I don't know if you have it set it up to automatically apply those. Sometimes, so you know, run software update. Just make sure it has the latest version because it could either be the version of the utility or the firmware and the device. Yeah, I think the device you can also set up to say, "Hey, by the way, if there's firmware out there, blink the light or something." So
0: yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, the airport ones, the Apple ones, will. Yeah.
1: And then general troubleshooting: get something like air radar or iStumbler or something. Look at what's in the neighborhood. Something that may have changed, and uh, when your computer tries to talk, um, oh. though resetting, uh, though the actually, well, it, it can't hurt to re-examine your landscape area now and then, just to make sure there isn't something that's potentially interfering.
0: That's a good point. That might help uh e- e- even with Daniel if he runs Air Radar uh on or iStumbler which are software it software packages, software programs that you run on your Mac and it'll tell you all about the other wireless networks that it sees, channel number, signal strength, all that stuff looking at one of those will tell you if you potentially have a conflict and you might have a neighbor, you know, in Daniel's case his i devices won't connect. Well, you know, if there's somebody else right nearby on the same channel, maybe that's interfering enough with his eye devices to stop them but not enough with his Macs, who knows. But that's uh that's certainly a possible. I hadn't even thought about that. That's good John. I like that. Huh. Well, you know, we've we've answered quite a few questions here. Uh, We've got some tips to share. And all of these have been sent in, of course, by you. Some of you may be asking, especially new listeners to the show, how do I send my question in? And we are happy to have. This is not a secret. This is how Dave. This is something wide open to all of you. Uh, You can. Well, the best way to do it. Our favorite way is if you can email us. At feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Uh, I want to make sure I heard you right that you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I did. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. And you can email us text, you can email us pictures, you can email us audio files. In fact, we've had probably already on this show, we've had some audio files that were recorded by people on their iPhones or iPads or iPod Touches. And then they just email the audio file directly to us from that device. Works really, really well. But it's possible you might be somewhere where that's not possible. Oh. And you want to call us. And that's totally fine too. You can call us at 206 666
1: geek. Last I checked, Dave, that is 4335. And again, if you're going to write into us at, and you're going to attach pictures or screenshots or movies or whatever, um, I guess in general, one is try to keep it brief, but not so brief that you don't include key information. Like, for example, if you say, I can't do whatever, let us know what error you get. That is oh so incredibly helpful. Yep. Just saying, I can't connect to something, leads us down the path but doesn't get us quite there because they're, they're yeah, it's, it's too vague, I think, for us to work with. So That's right. error messages are great, error codes, even though I hate them, or just what do you see? Take a screen snapshot and show us what you see. I mean, we, we've seen that, like people had video problems. You take a screen snapshot... Sure. It's crystal clear what's happening because it's very hard to describe. It helps.
0: So. Definitely helps. Uh, and then, of course, we also have our premium option. Uh, and if you are a premium subscriber, the email address that you can send things into is premium at MacGeekGab.com. In addition to uh, everything else, the premium subscribers also get two extra episodes every month. So it's uh, 25 bucks for six months. And then you can uh, email us at premium at macgeekgab. Dot com I think it's time to move on. Uh, where are we time-wise here? It's we've been we've been mm-hmm. having 40 so minutes. much fun. Yeah, forty minutes. All right. So should we let's let's go into Everett. I like this question. It's a good question, and I think we've got some good answers. So let's see.
3: Think so. I hey, think. John and Dave. This is Everett from Salinas, California. Um, I was wondering if um, I have two 500 gig hard drives that are in the same case, it's a dual hard drive case. They're really nice for desk space, but I'm using both hard drives for the exact same thing. And I was wondering if you could combine the two um, the two volumes. Sorry, they're the exact same. Two separate hard drives, I'd like them to be one volume. But here's the catch. Um, they're two 500 gig hard drives, which means that that's a terabyte, right? care about would be more, but it doesn't really matter. Um, I have tons of data on these two 500s, and I was wondering if you could combine them into being one drive without having to erase all of its contents, seeing as the other two drives are both 320s and they're both full. So I will talk to you guys later, and this is where you cut me off.
0: Great. Okay, so I'm going to lay this out Ooh. here, John, and then I think you've got some, some help. So Baby. what what he wants to do is stripe these drives together, right? We want to create one, and we'll use the term RAID, uh, volume that uses both drives as its storage mechanism, but appears to the computer as just one hard drive uh, when addressed on the desktop or, or anything like that. Does that, that, sound, that sound about right to you, John?
1: Yeah, I think that sounds right. And what, what you're referring to, Dave, uh, so when Dave says RAID, which I think you did, right? I did. I said RAID. So RAID is a, somewhat of a standard, at least at the low level. That, that it has different levels, and the levels give you more sophisticated uh, functionality as far as what you do with your hard drives. And the very first level is level zero, which, as you pointed out, Dave, is striping. Right. Right, which basically just combines drives, so it's certainly possible. Now, Apple in Apple's Disk Utility has the ability
0: to take multiple drives and connect them together or stripe them. Uh, and, oh, and you go well, into Disk there Utility, you go. right? You go into Disk Utility, you select the uh, the drive, you say create a RAID set, and put it all together. But the problem, as as Everett is likely aware. Is that this is a destructive operation for both drives, right? So in order to stitch them together, you have to forego the contents that exist initially, stitch them together. And now you've got, you know, this one volume that you can go and dump things onto. So that's not that's not what he wants. He wants to non-destructively repartition these drives, right?
1: Yes, okay. so so we we can get fancy here, Good. or we can we can do it the easy way.
0: What 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 would in a, in a is in as brief and and concise a way as possible? What would the fancy way entail?
1: Well, to me, the fancy way is. Well, no, I want to tell you the easy way. All right. Well, well tell the, easy the easy way, way. Yeah. Well, the easy way may be obvious. You get yourself a one terabyte drive. You blast all that data over to the one terabyte drive. Right. You make the RAID array. You copy all the data back. Unfortunately, that requires. But I'll say this. This may be the option that costs you money. So either you find a friend that can lend you a one terabyte drive. Sure. An empty um, one terabyte drive. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So to me, to me, that would be the optimal solution. But again, you, you need a friend that has a one terabyte drive that they want to, or you have to have enough money to get a one terabyte drive. Though so they're coming down in price. Yeah. the other thing, now here here's the harder way, Dave, and I don't know, I think we should write these folks. Okay. Um, you probably heard of Drive Genius. Oh, yeah. And I think we both have the latest uh, latest version of this, Drive Genius 3, and they inha- they have one feature which leads me to believe they may be able to do this. And they call it enhanced remote this is a new feature in drive genius three and the way they describe it without reading the the white paper or anything is that it says it will add delete hide expand or shrink now what i like about that i'm going to assume well i don't know i don't know if their expand or shrink are non-destructive and and they i don't see it in the quick description if they are which they could be and I believe even even if you dig around in the dirt on OS X, there is a way to non-destructively resize a partition. Though, though I think normally, as you suggested, Dave, with the RAID utility, that, I think, is going to wipe everything out. And I think it warns you right up front saying, you know, if you're going to do this, whatever data is there is gone. Right. So uh, so maybe just, you know, pop up an email. I mean, they're online, ProSoft, you know, they're they're a great bunch there. See if their program could do it. I, I think they offer a demo, but I don't think they offer, the demo offers uh, that functionality.
0: Yeah, the demo of... of- it does not do any writing or is in a very limited way, allows you to write to the disc. So I don't think it would let you do this. Uh, but I, I think, I, I, you know, I think the it, from the way I read it, the full version will do this, um, but we'll, we'll check with them and we'll certainly report back. Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, the, the thing is though, I'm going to, I'm going to stop here unless you need, one gigabyte of, you know, contiguous
1: space for some reason. Uh, sorry, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I may have said gigabyte before. I don't know if. Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we we got to adapt. Yeah, I mean, first right. it's terra, and then just to get ready to. I believe after terra is peta, peta. That's right. Yeah. Or peta. All right. Yeah. Just just to prepare everybody. Yeah, no. So I, I think, I think that's
0: right. I think, you know, if you need a full terabyte of space contiguously, that's not spread across two volumes, then this is certainly a way to achieve it. But I I really, I don't recommend it because here's the thing at some point in time, one of those drives is going to go bad, right? All hard drives will fail at some point, but they, chances are, they won't fail together. So here's the thing though. Once you've got these two married as a raid, and there's no fault tolerance in a RAID 0, which is striping it together like that. When one drive dies, you lose all your data. You know, you might get lucky. Maybe you'll be able to do some recovery, but it's going to take a lot of hard work to get that data. Whereas if you've got the data split between the two drives and one dies, well, the data that's on the other one is still good. Now that, you know, you've got to do backups. No matter, I don't care what you have. Any data that's only in one spot, it, you should consider gone It it's scratch data and it can die at any time. Uh, so you should have backups of everything. And if that's the case, then maybe striping these together, not so bad, but be very careful. Make this decision. Eyes wide open because I, I you know, I, I'm not convinced that it's, uh,
1: that it's a good idea. Yeah. That's I my, I don't, family. I don't believe the Apple program introduce allows you to do any sort of, uh, you know, the higher level RAID, which I think is, you know, above level is usually a parity feature that does some sort of redundancy, but then you need more drives. Then you need more drives because you
0: essentially give up a drive to be the parity drive. And, and so that gets slightly more expensive, but at the same time, you know, extremely fault tolerant. So, yeah, I you know, it, it's a tough thing. The other thing to consider, and it's just worth mentioning while we're while we're going through this, is that a lot of times these dual drive enclosures Have the capability of doing raid internally to them, uh, not with software, but with hardware. I don't know what drive enclosure you have, Everett, but it's possible that it has the ability to stitch these together. doesn't change the risks, Mm. but it does change how you can deal with that. Uh, You know, when you do software raid, it's up to the operating systems to sort of manage that raid uh, uh, set, if you will. When you do hardware raid, the operating system probably has no idea that it's a raid set that you're just plugging it in and it sees it as one drive off hanging off the firewire or USB chain. So that's uh, look into that. Again, chances are that that raid typically the raid hardware raid built into these things is pretty rudimentary. So it's probably going to be a destructive process as opposed to a non-destructive process.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm just looking quickly, Dave, and it, and it seems that our friends at OWC, which you and I yeah I think you use on a pretty regular basis, yep. I just did a quick search and they have multiple items. Uh, so I search for RAID OWC enclosure, and it comes up with enclosures. ESAT, yeah. and I'm sure otherwise, that uh, give you the RAID functionalities you pointed out on a board. I, I would assume on a board inside of the enclosure. Yeah. So, yeah, and like some of them say here, yeah, RAID, you know, zero, one, five, and ten. I guess ten is. Well, twice as good as five. (laughs) It would have to be. That's right. Because that's that's what
0: 10 is. It's it's five more. Uh, All right. Let's go. Let's go on to. That's great advice, by the way. Uh, Let's go. We've been discussing iPhoto lately and in the last couple of shows. And we've got a set of great tips uh, that you folks have shared that we want to kind of echo out to to the rest of the listeners here. So we'll start with Bob and we'll go from there.
4: Hi, John and Dave. Bob from Santa Barbara. I was listening to your podcast about um, iPhoto. I have a couple of comments about the person who wanted to transfer photos to another iPhoto library. When you're exporting photos from iPhoto, I think you're just exporting the most current version of the photo. You know, you can take a photo and you can um, edit it, right? You can adjust the colors and crop it and such. When you export photos, I think you're just taking the last edit. So you're losing the original photo when you export, I think. And I don't know what the other program does. If the guy is exporting to an external library because he wants to save space, then he should know about this too. When you delete a photo from iPhoto, you know it goes into the iPhoto trash, not your system trash. So a lot of people make this mistake. You delete a photo from from iPhoto, you notice in the left-hand column, there's a little trash can. That keeps all your photos there until you say, from the iPhoto menu, File, File. Empty Trash. I think that's where it is. It might be iPhoto Empty Trash. Just wanted to pass those two along. Thanks. Cool. Thanks,
0: Bob.
1: Do you have anything to add to that, John, before we move on? to Well, well I did verify. So just okay. to, to be clear, iPhoto has an export feature. And in the export feature is a kind field. And there are a number of options there. One of them is original. And we do, as you would suspect, it would export the original photograph before you did anything to it so it depends on what you want to accomplish so if you'd like to do that and i'm not going to try to guess why you'd want to do one way or the other but if you choose original it's going to be the photo that you took when it first was imported in iPhoto if you choose one of the other options and i verified this for example jpeg so i took a photo i cropped it well i took the original i dragged it on my desktop then or, or i exported it then i cropped it exported it again and the uh in one case i said original in the other case i said jpeg basically jpeg output the modified one so again depending on what you want to do but i verified this the behavior is different so so you want to keep in mind what you want to accomplish do you want to export the originals or the versions that you modified and i would guess you probably want to output the versions that you modified because sometimes that's a lot of work all the sliders and stuff like that unless you want to go back to the original i don't know but that's a great point so i verified that, that there is indeed a difference uh, depending on the kind field and the export feature in iPhoto. right 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 yeah
0: that makes sense that makes sense. All right. Uh and and his his comment about the iPhoto trash, it it's it bears repeating. We've said it before. He said it. We'll say it again now. When you trash a photo or photos from iPhoto, it does not go into your system trash, it but it does go into a trash. It goes into the iPhoto trash. What this means is those photos still take up space on your hard drive until you empty iPhoto's trash. So it's just important to remember that. It, you'll have to decide balancing space versus saving all these photos that you've trashed, whether when and whether you want to empty iPhotos trash. But I had stuff in an iPhoto trash for years before I realized, oh, hey, this stuff's all still here. It never went away. Got to go empty. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Uh, moving on to Jeff.
5: Hey, John and Dave, it's Jeff from Denver, Colorado. I was just listening to episode 283 about the iPhoto question. And one thing that had come to mind when John was talking about holding down the option key and starting up iPhoto, if you go into your photos directory and duplicate the iPhoto library onto an external hard drive, then go into the local iPhoto library, holding down the option key, making trees like that one, then you can go in and delete all the photos 2009 and older quit iPhoto, reopen it, holding down the option key, and open up the library that you copied onto the external hard drive, and then you can delete all the photos from 2010. And that seems like a fairly simple way of creating both of the different libraries that the person is wanting. And then regarding external hard drives, just last week I bought a Seagate uh, one terabyte external USB powered hard drive for eighty five dollars from Newegg. It seems to work pretty well. Uh, so just another option that's under a hundred dollars for a terabyte. This is where you cut me off.
0: Awesome, thanks, Jeff.
5: And yeah, I like that.
0: I like that idea. Duplicate and then delete from from either side. That uh, you know, I would I would triplicate. To be honest, I would I would make a third copy and go save it off somewhere else. Uh, just in case you you one or heaven forbid, both delete operations wind up somehow corrupting your your iPhoto library. At least that way you've got an
1: original that you've un, that you've left untouched. Yeah. And of course, if you use Time Machine, Time Machine does its own kind of special thing with, yep. uh, with iPhoto, which is yep. very nice.
0: Yeah. In fact, it's funny you mentioned Time Machine, John, because Rick's
1: tip uh,
0: for iPhoto sort of brings that into into focus. He says. In order to slim down my 12 gigabyte iPhoto library, I took your advice and bought iPhoto Library Manager. I then created several libraries using iPhoto Library Manager on an external USB disk and moved many of my photos to it. Problem solved. However, I then realized I no longer have a time machine backup of those external libraries like I did when all my photos were on my internal hard drive. And if I was not home, there was no way for me to access those photos because they had been moved to my external drive. Now what? Well, my solution to both these problems was Dropbox. I again used iPhoto Library Manager to recreate my external libraries on Dropbox. Now I have an online backup and a local backup of my photos. The bonus is that I can access all my backed up photos anywhere via Dropbox as long as I have an internet connection. And I've saved about 10 gigabytes of space on my internal hard drive. And iPhoto works much faster now. One thing to note, Rick did follow up with this, that he said he's using the new uh, betas of Dropbox, the 0.8 betas of Dropbox, which I, too, am using. And they allow you now to do selective sync, which means you do not have to always sync the. every folder down to your computer. So you can pick which folders sync down. And that's how he's saving some space on his internal hard drive is he's not letting those copy down, uh, from his Dropbox. So there, uh, that's good. There you go. We'll put a link in the show notes to, uh, sign up for Dropbox. Uh, you can go sign up and get a, get two gigs free. If you use our link, you get an extra 250 megabytes. So an extra quarter gig, and uh and so do we in one of our accounts here so we'll uh we'll we'll put that link in the show notes. Great. All right. Uh and then finally Dave has a different Dave. Yes. So that, that makes Good multiple one. Daves. This is the show there. Are, these are the Daves I know. I know. Remember that kids in the hall thing? I'm the only one. No, I, no, okay.
6: No. Hey John and Dave, this is Dave from Georgia and I was just listening to Mac uh, Geek Gab number 283 and enjoying that. Uh I was listening about the iPhoto management uh library management problems and um I'm sure you have a ton of responses on this. I'll add my two cents in. One is that if you're getting up to 6,000 photos or more in iPhoto, it really might be time to consider Aperture, which would uh pres- preserve the uh, uh, original files and not save the duplicate copies because you're you're wasting a ton of hard drive space keeping two copies of you actually have 12 up to 12,000 photos depending on how many uh, uh edits that you've made. The second uh, comment would be about the library export is that when you export the originals, if you've uh, done any kind of modification to the photos, that you're going to lose the uh, edits when you only export the originals. I've gotten around this by going in the uh, album or the event and just selecting the photos there um, and then exporting those, um, and that will get the originals and the uh, modifications where those are available. The last thing I would admit uh, that I would mention is that when John was talking about uh, creating a new library, one option would just be simply uh, to create a new iPhoto library and start saving uh, all the new photos to that library and taking the old library and archiving that uh, to a, a backup to two different, at least two different backup locations. Love the show, and this is where you cut me off. and uh, I...
0: All right. We will cut you off. Uh, cool. Do you have anything to add to that before we have one more tip? It's not an iPhoto tip, but it is a good nope. little tip before nope. we uh, move on. All right. Well, mm-hmm. since we only have time for one more, and this has been the show of multiple Daves, it, we, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, finish it out with a comment from yet another Dave.
7: Hi, Dave and John. Uh, this is Dave Cook from uh, Sagardis, New York. Uh, I just stumbled upon something after hearing a couple of things in a couple of other podcasts um, that I thought you might... Uh, find interesting, and maybe you've covered this stuff, and I apologize if you have.
0: No apologies, sir.
7: But I just bought the camera connection kit for my iPad, and I have a couple of uh, audio recording apps, and plugged my Dynex USB um, headset with microphone that I use for Skype and things uh, into it, and found that it's recognized by uh, just about everything. Um, I have a couple of telephone uh, apps on the iPad, of course, Skype included, and this other one called Whistle. Um, That seems pretty cool. And um, everything is uh, seeing the Dynex, and that's what I'm recording this little voice memo on right now. So let me know what it sounds like and um, pass it on. Okay, thanks. Talk to you guys soon. Cut me off.
0: You bet. So, yeah, Dave's right. What they call the iPad camera connection kit comes with two pieces, and I believe it's like 29 bucks. It's 30 bucks. So it comes with one piece that allows you to put some sort of card. I think it's just an SD card. So it plugs into the dock connector and then it's got an SD card slot. You can take in the, the SD stuff, offload your photos from the SD card onto into the photos app on your iPad. So that's cool, right? The piece number two, if your camera doesn't have an SD card, if it's got something else is a dock connector on one side, plugs into the iPad and a USB connection on the other and that's to plug into your camera. And this is great. But the, the, the hidden little trick or the secret trick, which is sort of an open secret now, is that this USB port is not limited to just being usable with a camera. In fact, it essentially adds a multi-use USB port to your iPad for anything. Uh, I've heard of people using, obviously you can't use a mouse because the iPad doesn't know what to do with a mouse, but you can use keyboards. You can use uh, microphones, as he points out. Uh, There's there's a lot of different reports of people using USB peripherals with this, with their iPads and really opening up the world uh, of functionality. In fact, you can even use it with a standard dock connector to plug your iPhone into your iPad and have it slurp the pictures from your iPhone off to uh, the iPad, which is it's just pretty cool. So, uh, so thanks Dave for, for bringing that up. And, uh, it's a, it's a good topic that well worth, it's well worth the 30 bucks if you've got an iPad, cause now it, it just opens up the world of possibilities. That's my feeling anyway.
1: You got anything? No, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was just uh hitting the library, uh, as of late, you know, to get Blu-rays cause I got Blu-rays and I got Blu-ray player. Yeah. They also got an iPad at our library, so they're pretty hip and happening. Hey, that's cool. That's bolted cool. down though. A security oh, well, cable on it You can't really Blame them for that
7: <laughs> No <laughs> huh.
0: Well John It sounds like You've got a little bit Of a cold And we've been doing this For about an hour
1: So it is yeah, time To wrap it's up It's fall Well actually no I'm sorry Fall is ah, yeah, Thursday that, huh? Okay and then Friday, I seem to recall, someone on the staff has a birthday. I, I forgot who it was, Dave. I'm not familiar with this that, of which you speak here. I have, uh, no? have no idea. I, I, I thought it was actually somebody on, on the staff of uh, Mac Ekeb, and it's it not was. me. So. It,
0: are you sure it's not you?
1: Yeah, that's my <laughs> birthday Friday. That's right. Well oh, you were talking about getting old. I thought I'd just rub it in.
0: Hey, that's That's
1: right. That's right.
0: So. You only get old once, though. Wait. All right. Uh, we've told you how to get in touch with us. We would love to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators, former the iPhone, formerly the iPhone Alley podcast. He converts this from MP3 into AAC enhanced for you, adding all the links and making all that great. If you do not want the AAC enhanced, and we've had some people that for whatever reason, either want the show a little bit faster because it takes a day or so to get the conversion to you or have devices that, you know, you you just don't want to use uh, AAC MP3 is better. You can go to MacGeekGab.com and there's a link there that you can it'll bring you right to iTunes and you can download the MP3 uh, and subscribe to the MP3 feed of the show. Of course, MacGeekGab.com is where you also subscribe to our premium version. And we, of course, very much appreciate all of you who support us in that way as well. Cashfly provides all the bandwidth. C a c h e f l y. They are the distributed CDN that uh, that gets the podcast from us to you. Blog World Expo is next month, but I think—and I might be wrong about this—I think our coupon code for twenty percent off has expired. If it, try it because it, it may still be good. I saw some tweets about how people were still using them. At Observer VIP, O B S E R V E R V I P. Blog World Expo is October fourteenth through sixteenth out in Las Vegas at the Mandalay Bay, and uh, and John and I will be there. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Bare Bones Software, PDF pen from Smile, Notebook <laughs> from Circus Ponies, and, uh, of course, Airfoil from Rogue Amoeba, and uh, all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And, John, that is it. It's time to get out of here. We will be back on Thursday with a premium show, and, uh, and we'll take it from there. All right. And well, then, uh, John, have fun. Take care of your cold. And by all means, yes. don't get
5: caught. Yeah. Made up.